You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. chapter 4, and we're going to read together verses 1 through verse 7, and then we'll open our time in prayer. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's go ahead and read it to the end of verse 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's bow our heads together as we open our time and ask God's help. Our Father, we have sung to you those things which are on our hearts this morning, and we have said things to you about your character and your grace toward us and how we have received that. But we know that there is nothing that we can say to you that is as important as what you have to say to us through your word. And so we ask for your help here this morning in understanding, in preaching, and in hearing your word, that you might be glorified here, that you might teach us through your word those things which are true about you and us and that we might walk away from here changed for eternity by your grace and for your glory. We ask this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I have to confess to you something. I'm not even sure that I know how to do this anymore. It's been so long since I've been up here looking out at some of you that I forgot what some of you look like, which is sort of a silver lining, I guess, from one perspective. Of course, I'm not talking about all of you, just a few of you. So if you think I'm talking about you, I'm probably not. And if you don't think I'm talking about you, I probably am. We conveniently ended our study in the book of Philippians with the end of chapter 3. Sort of wrapped up really nice. We finished verse 21. And uh, today we're going to begin Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning and be done with the book of Philippians before we leave. You know that's not true, don't you? Yeah. We will get through verse 1, though, I do promise you that. Actually, because we have been so long outside the book of Philippians, I would be willing to bet that most of you probably have forgotten most of the flow of the book of Philippians. 
So what we need to do is we want to look up from chapter 4 for just a minute. We want to sort of survey the book of Philippians, go back, recap chapters 1, 2, and 3, sort of get our bearings again so that we make sure that as we step into chapter 4, which begins with the word, therefore, that we understand what chapter 4 is there for. So we need to sort of catch our bearings, and we're going to do that just with a little bit of review. There's no better way to review, review the book of Philippians than for me to offer to you that convenient little alliterated outline that I gave you when we started the book. All of the points start with P, which makes it really easy for me to remember, and I hope for you to remember as well. The book of Philippians is not chiefly about joy and rejoicing, although that's a central theme. It's not chiefly about living for others, though that is a central theme. The book of Philippians is about Jesus Christ. He is mentioned or referred to 70 times in these four short chapters. It's all about Him. And so the outline that we have to go through for the book of Philippians really keeps that in mind. And it's an outline that I borrowed from Brian Atmore. He gave it to me. He doesn't know where he got it, but he plagiarized it. So the outline I'm about to give you has been twice plagiarized. Chapter 1, we saw the purpose of Christian living, which was Christ. And our sort of theme verse for chapter 1 was chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And we saw in chapter 1 how the Apostle Paul wrestled through that desire to depart and to be with Christ. And yet, he at the same time wanted to remain on and be with the Philippians because he realized that for their sake it was better to have him here, but for his sake it was better for him to go to be with the Lord. So Paul basically said, I'm willing to sort of put off my journey to heaven, my time in heaven, if I can, in order to be here with you Philippians in order that I may serve you in the gospel. And you remember the gospel is a central theme in chapter 1, mentioned six times. Paul's whole life was all about the gospel. That's why he could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because everything that he did was wrapped up with the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, the defense of the gospel, the articulation of the gospel. Everything he did was for the gospel. And because the gospel is Christ's gospel, Paul could say, because he lived for the gospel, that for him to live was Christ and to die is gain. And you and I both know that nobody can truly say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, whose life has not been impacted and is not focused on the gospel. Nobody who plays fast and loose with the gospel, who perverts the gospel, doesn't defend the gospel, doesn't care about the gospel, can truly say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So the purpose of Christian living, chapter 1, that's Christ. Then we get the pattern of Christian living in chapter 2. And we saw that pattern given to us in the first 11 verses where the apostle focuses our attention on Christ and he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, who although he exists in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to at all costs, but instead he laid aside the prerogatives of deity, the glories of heaven, the comforts of his, of his deity, and he stepped down into humanity, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the ultimate example of that mind of humility, that selfless, sacrificial, giving mind which offers itself in service to others. So no person can truly say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, unless he can say, my purpose for living is the gospel and Christ, unless he can also say, my pattern for living is Christ, and I am willing to serve other people. The selfish person cannot say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's only the person who's willing to sacrifice and give himself or herself in the service to others that can make that claim of chapter 1, verse 21. That's the pattern for Christian living. And who is our pattern for Christian living? It's Christ. How do we live as Christians? 
We ought to follow Christ. And then Paul goes on in chapter 2 to give us three more examples. Remember what they were? Of course you don't, because I had to remember myself of it this last week. The first one was Paul himself, who said, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, and in this I rejoice. Willing to pour himself out in sacrifice and service to the Philippians. Then he gave a second example of somebody who followed after the mind of Christ, and that was Timothy. Of whom Paul could say, I know nobody else who is of like-mindedness, who is of kindred spirit, as Timothy, who will genuinely be concerned for your interests. All the other men, Paul says, are concerned about their own interests. But Timothy would genuinely be concerned about you. So I'm going to send Timothy to you so that he can report back to me how you're doing. Then there was a third example at the end of chapter 2, and that was Epaphroditus. Whom, Paul said, was their messenger to his need, and Epaphroditus had come to Philippi to... Er, Sorry, to Rome from Philippi to serve Paul. But then while he was there, remember, Epaphroditus got sick. And to add insult to injury, the Philippians found out that Epaphroditus was sick. And Epaphroditus got concerned. Not he wasn't concerned for himself. He was concerned that the Philippians were concerned about him. And he didn't want the Philippians upset that he was sick. He didn't even want them to know. That's a second or a third example of that selfless Christ-like spirit. And then at the end of chapter 2, Paul says, these are the type of men that you should hold in high regard. Then in chapter 3, having given to us the type of men that we should follow in chapter 2, in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives us two types of men that we should avoid. He begins chapter 3 by talking about the enemies of the cross of Christ, and our key word for chapter 3 was the prize of Christian living. The purpose of Christian living is Christ, the pattern for Christian living is Christ, and the prize of Christian living is Christ. And our key verse was verse 14. I press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is our prize for Christian living? It's Christ. We get His righteousness. We get Him as the prize. Our upward call is to heaven where He is. We get the Savior. That's the prize that we get. And that's what Paul's talking about in chapter 3, verse 14. With forgetting those things which are behind, I press on toward that prize. But at the beginning of the chapter, he says, basically, there are men you should avoid. What are these men like? Well, they're dogs, they're evil workers, and they're the false circumcision. These men are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They're not moral enemies. They're doctrinal enemies. These are men who had all of the outward trappings of righteousness and godliness, all of the outward shows of piety, things that you and I would look at and say, wow, that's a godly individual, that's a righteous individual, that's a clean living, moral individual. But these men had one singular, fundamental error that made them enemies of the cross of Christ. And that is that they boasted in their own self-righteousness and their own accomplishments. Rather than looking to Christ as the source of the righteousness, they looked to themselves and said, I can take pride in my flesh, I can take pride in my circumcision, I can boast in my keeping of the law and all the outward accoutrements of my religiosity. And so they undermined the gospel of Christ because rather than looking to Him and trusting in Christ for righteousness, they looked to themselves and trusted in their own goodness to earn them God's merit and God's favor. And Paul says you ought to avoid such men and not boast in the flesh. But understand that the righteousness that you've been given is a perfect righteousness and that you stand perfectly holy in the presence of God. But then at the end of chapter 3, he warns us of a second group of men. These are not doctrinal errors of the, or doctrinal enemies of the cross. The second group of men were moral enemies of the cross. Having all of their doctrinal ducks lined up in a row, able to cross their doctrinal T's and dot their doctrinal I's, these men Although having a profession of godliness and knowing all of the right doctrines, these men, Paul says, they're earthly, they're of this earth, their glory is in their shame, their God is their appetite, and they set their mind on earthly things. These are men who lived licentious lives. Their error was not a doctrinal error, it was a moral error. 
the doctrine that they knew in their heart never impacted their lives, and they continued in in licentiousness, using grace as a license to sin. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 3, instead, you ought to follow my example and avoid these evil men, these false circumcision, these dogs, these evil workers, and avoid the men whose minds are set on earthly things, whose glory is their shame, and who, whose God is their belly, and instead you ought to follow after me. And then he has that reminder at the end of chapter 3 where he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, according to the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Then we get to chapter 4, the word therefore. Now, you probably wish I could have preached the first three chapters that fast the first time we went through it, right? The word therefore, and then we ask ourselves, what is the word therefore, therefore, at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1? Because we come across the word therefore, and we're instantly reminded of the fact that chapter 4, verse 1 is either an introduction to a whole list of conclusions drawn out of chapter 3, or it is itself a conclusion of chapter 3, and I think it's the latter. I think chapter 4, verse 1 is the concluding idea of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is basically going back, I think, as far as chapter 3, verse 2, and he is saying, Therefore, my beloved, in this way I want you to stand firm in the Lord. Being aware of the evil men, the doctrinal enemies of the cross of Christ, being aware of the moral enemies of the cross of Christ, following after the example that I have set for you, and esteeming worthy men who have already set the example of Christ for you, in this way you are to stand firm in the Lord. So I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 1, and I want you to notice a couple things just generally about the verse before we look at it in greater detail. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice that there is a lot of very affectionate terms of endearment in that verse. Do you notice that? The Apostle Paul seems to heap one upon another. There's actually five of them there. And then there is one command that is given to us. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. That's the central idea of the whole verse. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. But now, if you took out all of the terms of endearment and just read the verse, it would say, therefore, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. But the Apostle Paul does something in this passage that he doesn't do in any other passage in all of his writings in the New Testament. You know what it is? He keeps one term of endearment and one term of affection upon another There are five of them that are mentioned in that verse. Now, there are other places in Paul's letters where he talks about Christians as being beloved and his love for them and his longing for them and his desire and his affection for them. But nowhere else in all of Paul's writings do you get this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, those whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved brethren, five different terms, he just heaps them one upon another. Now, does that make you somewhat uncomfortable? It does me a little bit, and I have to be honest with you as to why. It sounds to me a little gushy, doesn't it? Amen? You would feel a little awkward if I walked up to you after the service and I heaped something like that on you. Right? Gave you a big hug, a holy kiss in the Lord, and and laid out all five of those things on you. You would probably run for the door. And just for the record, so would I if you did that to me. So I'm not suggesting that we adopt such a... A method. But what I do want you to see is how, and listen, maybe it's just because I'm an American and you're an American that this stuff makes us feel uncomfortable. Maybe it's just our cultural mindset where those, that type of affectionate statements would make us feel a little awkward. Now, ladies do this all the time. You're just gushy by nature. You're gushy with each other. You're gushy with other people. But guys don't do this. We don't meet to go watch a movie or meet for lunch and, and start hugging and saying these things to each other. It's just awkward for us to do that. And it's, and it's a little uncomfortable. 
But the Apostle Paul, what I want you to notice is how easily the Apostle Paul was able to share his love and his affection with these brothers in Christ. These are not just empty words. These are, these are terms of affection which really have a deep, significant meaning. I think there's a reason why all five of them are here, and I'll share that with you in just a minute. But Paul did not hide his emotion and his love. You can go back to chapter 1, and you know what you'll notice? He says, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I long to see you, my beloved. He just pours this out on the Philippians because they were very near and dear to his heart. But the Apostle Paul was, was very able to share his affection with the Philippians and to do so without feeling like less of a manly man. Right? Do you take that and do that what you want? Don't expect me to feel comfortable with it overnight, but uh, maybe it's something we should work on. So the Apostle Paul gives all five of those terms of endearment, those terms of affection, and listen, they weren't just meaningless things to Paul, and they weren't just meaningless things to the Philippians. Sometimes we use terms of endearment or affectionate terms, and they're really devoid of meaning. They can be that way. Sometimes that happens in marriage, right? You use the term honey or hun or sweetie pie or sweetie or whatever your little thing is that you do between you and your spouse. You use terms like that, but after a period of time, they can do what? Hey, honey, get over here, right? And the word honey just all of a sudden lost all of its meaning and significance because it comes nothing more than just another nickname. One of my Bible profs used to quote a little poem to us. It said, before I married Maggie Deer, I was her honey bunch her sweetie pie, her precious boy. But after years of married life, this thought I paused to utter, those honeyed names are gone now. I'm just her bread and butter. <laughs> See, that, that type of empty hun or honey is not what Paul has in mind in Philippians chapter 4. The first one that he uses is the term beloved brethren. Agape tas is the word. And you can see the word agape in there. The agape is the word for God's love. It's a sacrificial, self-giving love. The type of love that would be willing to say, look, I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, and I can rejoice in that. That's the type of sacrificial love Paul's talking about. He's not talking about a brotherly love. He's not talking about two chums. He's not talking about a a two-way love. You love me and I'll love you. He's not talking about an erotic love. He's talking about a sacrificing love, a willingness to say, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to give to you. I'm willing to sacrifice for you. I'm willing to lay myself down for you. That's the type of love that Paul is mentioning there. My beloved brethren. It's a very... Very sacrificial, very enduring term, a very special term. But he wants them to know, look, I esteem you and I love you with the love of Christ. A sacrificial love. I'm willing to die for you. That's the idea. Then look at the next term in chapter 4, verse 1. He says to them, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see. Literally means longed for ones. He uses the verb form of this longing back in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, I long for you all with the affection, the splachnon. Remember that great word? The shplachnon of Jesus Christ. I have this longing for you. I long for you. And here he uses the noun form and he just calls them basically the longed for ones. I long for you. I have a longing for you. You're the longed for ones. My beloved brethren and those for whom I long. Now what type of longing was Paul talking about? He's talking about a longing obviously where he desires to see the Philippians. He's already said that several times in the epistle. He has a desire to see them and a desire to be with them and a desire to serve them and a desire for them to minister to Him as well and have that fellowship. But friends, there's another kind of longing that goes with this and that is a longing for someone's spiritual well-being. If you read the book of Philippians, you see the Apostle Paul saying, I want you to stand unified in one purpose, intent on one idea, of one mind together, giving yourselves for each other, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
knowing that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I long for you to beware of false teachers, to avoid men like this, to esteem worthy men, to experience the love and participation and fellowship in the Gospel of Christ. It's all of that type of longing. A longing that desires somebody's spiritual best. Our emotions and our longings can be very shallow for people, can't they? Man, I just want to be with that person and see that person. But yet the farthest thing from your mind is how that person is doing spiritually. And whether they're progressing in the faith or not. Sometimes our longings for each other and our affection toward each other can be very shallow if it doesn't include that element of, man, I also want them to be spiritually happy and spiritually stable and progressing in their relationship with the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul has in mind. You are my beloved brethren, my longed-for ones, and then we'll take the next two words together, my joy and my crown. Now, throughout the book of Philippians, the word joy, uh, kara is it, the, the Apostle has used it in different ways. He talks about rejoicing and, and experiencing joy and having joy and commands them later on in chapter 4 to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Joy is one of the central themes of the book of Philippians. But, but listen, the Apostle Paul puts a little bit of a twist on it here in chapter 4, verse 1. He calls them his joy. Now, wasn't Paul rejoicing in the Lord? And in what sense did he mean that the Philippians were his joy? Wasn't the Lord his joy? Wasn't the Gospel his joy? And if the Philippians turned on Paul and hated him and didn't do anything to serve him, would they still be for him a source of joy? In what sense was the Apostle Paul saying that they were his joy? Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul was willing to rejoice in the Lord and to always rejoice no matter what his circumstances were. But there's a special sense in which the Philippians were for the Apostle Paul a source of joy. That word can be used to refer to something that is an objective joy, to the joy itself, that emotion that you feel or that that contentment that you feel in your spirit where you're rejoicing in something. It's used to refer to that. It's also used to refer to something that causes joy. And you and I use that term that way all the time, right? My children are a joy. Okay, well, maybe you never said that. But you might say, well, serving the Lord is a joy, or worshiping is a joy, or doing this is a joy, or going here is a joy, and what I do is a joy. What we mean by that is that this thing or this person or this group of people causes me immense joy. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, What thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account every day? That's the idea. They were a source of joy for the Apostle Paul, but also his crown. His Stephanos, that's the word that's used to refer to a crown, uh, a literal, like Jesus wore a crown of thorns. It's used to refer to the crown of thorns that Jesus wore. It's also used metaphorically to refer to the eternal reward given to the faithful. There is laid up for me, Paul says, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. First Timothy, sorry, Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. It's used to refer to that reward that's given to the faithful. It's also used in 1 Peter chapter 5 to say that the elders who have, who have ruled well and have served well under the Lord will receive the unfading crown of glory, same word, used throughout the New Testament, mostly to speak of that eternal reward. Here the Philippians were, for Paul, not only a cause of great joy, but also, he says, my crown. He says a very similar thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he says to the Thessalonians, who is our hope or our joy or our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and our joy. That's the same thing. Same idea. Who is my joy? Who is my crown? Who is my glory? When Christ comes back, Paul says to the Thessalonians, 
It's going to be you. Now, here's a question for you. Were the Philippians, Paul's crown and his joy, presently, or was he looking forward to something in the future? Some people would say the Apostle Paul has in mind that future element because he says to the Thessalonians, it's at the coming of our Lord and His appearing. That's when you will be for us our joy and our crown. And so they would say, on that day when we stands before Christ, He's going to see the Philippian congregation there, the Thessalonian congregation there, the Galatian congregations there, the congregation of Corinth and Berea and Antioch and all those people that He had served. And it would be for Paul a tremendous source of rejoicing. And they would be an eternal reward for him, an eternal reminder of years of faithful service and sacrifice. So it's something future that we have to look forward to. Others would say, no, but in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is saying, you are currently, not you will be, but currently you are my joy and my crown. So which is it? I think it's bold. I think it's bold. And what I want you to notice, it's people that are his joy and his crown. You see that? Do you view your Sunday school class that way? These little kids are my joy and my crown. Not crown of thorns, but my crown. Do you view your Awana group that way? That little group of kids that you get to minister to every Friday night? Or do you see them as, man, I can't wait to get out of here. Or do you sit there and you look at all these little kids and you realize one of these days, these little kids, some of them, perhaps many of them, or maybe all of them, hopefully, will stand in eternity with me before the Lord and imagine the source of joy. Friends, I believe, and I want you to imagine this, I believe that when we stand before the Lord, we are going to see the eternal ramifications of everything we have done down to the last cup of cold water that we've offered in the name of Christ. And it is going to imagine the joy on that day. You will see exponentially greater than anything you've seen here on earth, anything your mind can even imagine now, the eternal ramifications of that that weight of glory and that weight of joy for a sacrificed and sacrificial and loving, giving, serving life that God did through you. That is what I believe the Apostle Paul has in mind. But it's not only something future, it's also something present. It was something where the Apostle Paul could say, you are today a source of joy to me and you will be forever. You are today a crown for me and evidence of my faithful service and you will be forever. Boy, that really would just warm your heart if you were the Philippians, wouldn't it? It would warm your heart if I were to say that to you, wouldn't it? Maybe you'd think I was being cocky or arrogant, so I won't say it, but you are. First Thessalonians, or Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, there's a fifth term. My beloved brethren, my joy, my crown, or my long for, my joy, my crown, and the fifth one, my beloved. As if the Apostle Paul hasn't said that enough, right? Now you say, Jim, you told us you would say, why it is that you think all of those are there? Why do I think the Apostle Paul heaps all of those up at the beginning of that chapter? There's a reason. I think it's because of verse 2 and verse 3. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. You say, that is a mild rebuke. And it is a very mild rebuke. I mean, compare that to the book of Galatians or 1 Corinthians. And you'll see just how mild of a rebuke that is. Very mild. He's just saying, look, there are two women who are obviously in the congregation causing some sort of distress, some disunity, some lack of oneness of thinking, and I want you to, Yodia and Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. A mild rebuke and the only words of correction offered in this holy epistle. This is the only thing that the Apostle Paul has in all of the book of Philippians to say, look, I want you to deal with this. All of the rest of it is instruction in terms of affection and endearment, but here even before 
He offers to them reproof. As mild as it is, He reminds them, I want you to know how much I love you. By the way, reproof is always taken better when you preface it with some reminder of your love. Right? That's how it always is. With kids, with your spouse, with somebody in the congregation, with a friend, with a neighbor. Find something positive to say about that person and say it. The Apostle Paul didn't have to struggle too much with the Philippians. But find something positive to say and say it and then offer the correction. That's what Paul does. That's why that's there. He's heaping it on them. Laying it on thick by your and I's, by, by our standards. But he wants them to know, I want you to know I love you. But here's something that you've got to deal with. And we'll look at Yodi and Syntyche more next week. But now I want you to notice, we've looked at the terms of endearment. Now there's this one command in the book, or one command in that verse, chapter 1. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. Now those words probably remind you of other places in the New Testament where you've read the term stand firm. Ephesians chapter 6, stand firm in the Lord and in the power of His might. Right? Having done all, to stand. Galatians chapter 5, stand in the liberty with which you've been set free in Christ. First Peter chapter 5, stand in the grace of Christ. We're told over and over, I could give you two dozen references like that. We are told over and over again in the New Testament, look, act like men, stand up straight, get a backbone, stand in the faith. Be strong in the Lord and stand up because you and I have the ability to do that. But the Apostle Paul has something in mind here specifically because we might ask, how am I to stand or in what way am I to stand? What does my standing look like when I'm standing firm in the faith? You could go back to Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 where Paul says, whether I remain on or I'm absent, where I remain on and come and see you or whether I'm absent from you, I want to hear that you're standing together in the faith, striving together in the gospel. That was his concern. He wanted them to be a strong church and to stand up under persecution, under pressure, under attacks from the enemy, and under attacks from false teachers. To stand up. Now, in notice that the Apostle Paul says, in this way, stand. What is he talking about? Well, that takes us back into chapter 3 again, doesn't it? How do I stand? You stand by applying chapter 3. Beware of the evil dogs, false teachers, circumcision, the false circumcision, these teachers. Beware of those who set their minds on earthly things, whose God is their belly, whose glory and their shame. Beware of those who do not follow after the example that you have in us. Beware of those men. Beware of trusting in your own flesh and your own righteousness. Beware of straying away from the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ. Beware of not working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Beware of not trusting in the Lord to do that work in you. Beware of not striving together with me. In other words, all of chapter 3, you apply that. That's standing in the Lord. In this way, how? You stand in the Lord by doing everything that's in chapter 3. Be wearing of the evil men, following after good men, and trusting in the Lord for His righteousness and not boasting in your flesh. That's how you stand. Now, what is our motivation for standing? That's at the end of chapter 3 as well. Our citizenship is in heaven. Why would I want to stand up as a Christian? Because my citizenship is in heaven. Verse 20. I want to stand because my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. My name is enrolled on the citizen book of heaven. I'm there. My Savior is there. My citizenship is there. My hope is there. My treasure is there. All of my expectation is there. My ultimate joy, ultimate glory, all of that is in heaven. And so you stand up. Why? Because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you're a citizen of heaven. Therefore, stand up, Paul says, and act like one. Stand firm in the Lord and act like a citizen of heaven. But a second motivation is because from heaven, verse 20, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I want Him to catch me sitting? Or laying down? Or compromising? 
when He comes back, I want Him to catch me standing at attention. And standing strong. Not weak in my faith, but strong in my faith. I don't want the Lord to come back and catch me spineless, without a spine, spiritually speaking. But I want the Lord to come back and to catch me standing. That's a motivation, isn't it? I want to be there and I want to be strong. When If the Lord were to present Himself this afternoon, I want to be standing firm in the Lord. But there's a third motivation. It is because the Lord will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Bodily resurrection. That's why at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, after explaining all of those details about the resurrection for a whole chapter, 57 verses, the Apostle Paul says at the end of the resurrection chapter, therefore be firm and immovable in the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Right? Stand up and stand strong. Why? Because when the Lord comes back, He's going to transform you and give you a resurrection body, take you to be with Himself, and thus you will ever be with the Lord. Those are three massive motivations. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm waiting for a Savior, and I'm going to be transformed into the body of His glory. Therefore, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. So Paul has described to us what it means to stand, and he's given us three good motivations for which we should stand. Now, friends, we have a lot of enemies to our faith. In chapter 1, we're told about those who persecute us for the faith. Chapter 2, our enemy is ourself. It's not those who are outside the church, but it's actually the enemy within. My own selfish, vain conceit, my own pride, my own, my own selfish motives. Those, that's the enemy in chapter 2. What's the enemy in chapter 3? Those who are within the church claiming to be believers, but living licentious lives. Those are all enemies of the cross. And so the Apostle Paul says, in the face of those who persecute you, and in the face of your own selfish ambition, and in spite of those within the church who undermine the gospel, I want you to stand. And you ought to stand because you're a citizen of heaven. You're waiting for a Savior. And when He comes back, He's going to transform you from this lowly state into conformity to the body of His glory. And I rejoice in the fact that that might be this afternoon. And I truly tell you, I hope it is. I really don't want to live through this next election. I hope it comes soon. Let's pray together and then we'll observe communion. Our Father, we are grateful for the admonitions of Your Word, for the hope that You give us. Lord, we ask that what we do not know that You would teach us and what we are not that You would make us, that You would reveal to us those things in our hearts that need to change and conform us more into the image of Christ. We know that that's going to happen by Your grace, little by little and day by day, until eventually You will come back and we will be made just like Him. We look forward to that day and we thank You for the hope that we have. Give us now, our God, we ask, the grace to stand firm in Your Word, in the truth, not compromising, not backing down, and give us the backbone that we need so that when You come, You might find us faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. 
Once again, thank you for listening.